You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, welcome to the special Friday broadcast here on The Line of Fire. I won't be taking your calls today. Every so often we answer questions that are posted on Twitter, on Facebook. Today is our Twitter day, but but don't post now. All questions have already been posted. I solicited them some days ago, so I'm going to be answering the first ones that came in. So don't post now. We have more than enough, but sit back and enjoy the broadcast. We'll start with a question from Joseph. Hi, your opinion on Aramaic Syriac rite of the Universal Church Apostolic Catholic Orthodox Oriental branches with liturgical Aramaic and Mass of St. James the Just. Messianic Judaism seeks ethnic tradition and identity after believing in Messiah. Aramaic Christians are Jewish descendants. Okay, Joseph, there's a lot in your question there, and I'm not 100% sure I understand each point you're making. Let me try to break things down as I can and I cannot speak with expertise to every part of your question. As far as Messianic Jews, Messianic Jews say, well, we're Jews who believe in Jesus, like Paul and John and Peter and the other apostles and the the first waves of believers in the book of Acts. And as Jews, just like in the first century, our identity is important to us. It's part of our calling in God. Just like if I was someone from the nation, (laughs) excuse me, someone from the nations, Uh, can be called a Gentile, but someone from the nations, there'd be a specific calling and purpose on me from the distinct nation where I was. Well, there's a heritage the Jewish people have. And rather than throwing that away or casting it off, we find it enhanced and deepened by being in Jesus. We find salvation alone in him. We find forgiveness of sins alone in him. We find no superiority in saying we're Jewish. We are all one in the Messiah, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, slave and free. However, just as there's still distinctions between men and women, there's still distinctions between Jew and Gentile. And for many identifying as Jews or celebrating the Passover in a Jewish way with Jesus at the center of it, these things are important. Worshiping on the seventh-day Sabbath is important for many Messianic Jews. It's not a separatist thing. It's not a superiority thing. It's simply continuing and our calling as Jews, which Paul encourages in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're called to the Lord, he says, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. If you're called uh, uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. Now, Aramaic Christians, to my knowledge, do not have Jewish blood. Say, for example, the the Christians in Iraq who identify as Assyrian and use Aramaic in their liturgy, they have early roots. They go way back in many ways to the early church. Are they, (laughs) excuse me, descendants of the original Jewish believers, and then ultimately lost their Jewish identity. It could be, but it could also be some of the early Gentile converts and over the centuries preserved some of the the language and and liturgy that had been used. Now, as for the practices of the Assyrian church itself, I cannot speak with expertise. I can say that the Aramaic used is not the same as the Aramaic in Jesus' day, but it is Aramaic. And therefore, to pray the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic, the accent may not be the same, but that's a beautiful thing to preserve liturgy and Aramaic, which would have been the 
the mother language of Jesus and the apostles than Hebrew, perhaps spoken in, in more religious settings. That's certainly a beautiful, wonderful thing. However, like many other churches, they develop traditions that add things to scripture and some are fine, some are neutral, some are bad, and they have to be evaluated in that way. As to the very specific issue you, you, you mention here, uh, I'm not familiar with that in detail. All right, Philistine wants to know, what's my credit card number? Oh, and the three digits on the back. <laughs> That's because we had said, hey, all questions are welcome. So just uh, go for it. All questions, welcome. Love your work. Hey, good question from Philistine. <clears throat> all right. Um, friendly man asked this. I've asked God, what shall I ask this man? He said, silence. Ask this man how silence fits into his life. And how does he confirm I'm talking with his heart? So friendly man feel, feels that the Lord gave him a question for me, either from the Lord or from friendly man himself. I'm happy to answer it. Um, silence plays a role at some times in my life when I am trying to get away from the clutter of things, from the busyness of life, from the busyness of ministry from the constant writing, constant speaking, constant giving out and trying to stop and slow down and reflect, get God's mind, get God's heart and, and wait before him. Now, I don't do this for extended periods of time, you know, just go in a room for, for four hours and just sit silently. But there are times of silent meditation, sometimes meditating on the truth of scripture and just mulling it over, mulling it over looking at different ways to understand it, trying to get quiet, trying to get insight. And then there are times where I'm, I just feel, just wait, wait, be quiet. Stop praying, stop talking, just wait. And then how do I know that God is speaking to my heart? Well, the times where I really have, there's been that deep witness of the spirit. There is the same witness in my spirit that I know that I know that I'm a child of God, as for example, Romans 8, 16, that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. There's a, a deep sense of witness and the word that rises within my heart rises with a sense of real affirmation and assurance and stays there. And that's how I sense that God is speaking to me. Of course, it has to be in full harmony with scripture, etc. That's a given. Um, John, what is repentance? And how do you know when someone has repented? Is salvation based on faith alone or is repentance involved? Faith and repentance are certainly two sides of the same coin. There can be no real faith without repentance. There can be no real repentance without faith. You'll notice that there are three times in the New Testament that the word repent or repentance and the word faith occur in the same verse. Mark 1.15 where Jesus calls on people to repent and believe the good news. Acts 20, 21, where Paul explains that his custom in preaching was to preach repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus. And Hebrews 6, 1, that speaks of repentance towards God and faith, repentance from dead works and faith in God. So significantly, each time those Two words occur, repent slash repentance and faith in the same verse. Repent comes first. Repentance is a turnabout. Repentance is not just changing your mind. Repentance is a change of 
mind and heart and direction and action. It's an about face. I'm going in this direction. I turn back to God. It is not becoming a better person. That's a fruit of repentance. It, it, it is not a, a growing in holiness. That's a fruit of repentance. It's turning away from sin and self and rebellion and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And, and, and we know, Acts 26, 20, Paul says that people should repent and prove their repentance by their deeds. So the fruit of the repentance is seen by a changed life. So how do I say repentance and faith go hand in hand? I cannot truly turn to God without believing in him. And I cannot truly believe in him without turning away from idols and self and sin. And what I'm asking him to do is save me from my sin. Forgive me. Give me a new heart. Give me a new life so I can serve you, right? In other words, repentance is not merely, I'm changing my mind about God. I'm thinking differently about God. And faith is not merely, I want to go to heaven. God, I believe you can get me to heaven. No, we are saying, God, save me from my sins. Forgive me, cleanse me, wash me. That's repentance and faith working hand in hand. Salvation is salvation from sin. So there can be no true salvation without repentance. But repentance is not penance. But I'm going to fast one day a week for the next five years. I'm going to kneel for three hours a day until my knees start to, to get calloused. You know, that, that's, that's trying to do good works to earn favor or sacrificial rights to earn favor. Repentance is a matter of turning to God and asking for mercy. It is not a work. It is part of our faith saying, God, save me from my sin. Um, Chad, with three minutes left on a train ride, what is your go-to gospel presentation to both Jew and Gentile? Well, if, if I had only three minutes, I, I, would, I would want to make that person aware of their need for God. I, I would ask them if they believe God existed. If they said yes, I would, I would ask them if they thought that he cared about how we live. If they said yes, I would ask them how they're living compared to God's standards. And I would say, you know, Jesus taught this and this and this about holiness, about purity, about our thought life, about our words, about our actions. I just give a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount that based on that, do you think that you're good enough to get into heaven? They said, no. Then I would explain the meaning of the gospel. I would explain Jesus dying on the cross. And I do that for Jew or Gentile alike. Now, if there was a Jewish person that's, that was open to me reading the scriptures, then the one passage I would read to a Jewish person, if I had no other time, I would read Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and ask, of whom does that speak? And then can you see how we rejected him? We misunderstood his sacrifice on the cross. We thought he was dying for his sins. He was actually dying for ours. If I'm speaking to a Gentile and there was openness, you know, I might just read from John 3, 16 or quote that a few verses there to get them to understand God's love and the need to turn from the darkness and come to the light. But a key thing, I, I would want them to know they need a savior. I would want them to understand that there is a coming judgment, that we'll have to give account to God, that we all fall short on our own, and we all need mercy. All right, let's see. Um, radical monotheist. What are your thoughts on historic premillennialism 
that holds to the belief that a Christian's ultimate inheritance is a restored Jerusalem here on earth. This view is held by Abrahamic faith ministries. If you mean by that, sir, that the ultimate inheritance is during the millennial kingdom. No, that's certainly not the goal. That's certainly not the long-term ultimate hope. That is something that will be here for a thousand years after, after which there will be a, a further purging judgment and then the eternal age. If you said our eternal inheritance will be a new Jerusalem coming down onto this earth and this earth will be literally heaven on earth with the Lord dwelling with us and we'll be with him forever and ever and ever. So rather than going to heaven forever, heaven on earth forever. Yeah, I, I can see that from Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. We'll be right back. God of light, hear our cry. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown. It's the Friday broadcast. You've got questions. We've got answers. But we're not taking calls today. I'm answering questions that have already been posted on Twitter. So don't post them now. But sit back, enjoy the broadcast. If you have questions where you, you really have a need, you're struggling with something, you're, you're trying to get insight, you, you're, you're in a difficult situation and you need some wisdom from the word or, or you're, you're a Jewish person seeking the truth about the Messiah, by all means, write to us at askdrbrown.org. Just click on contact and we have a team that's happy to answer and help and things that need my involvement input, uh, we're happy to, to do our best to, to help. But today we're answering your Twitter questions. Tom, what is the Jewish Christian view of Hagar and Ishmael? Okay, I, I'm sorry to say that I don't know what you mean by the Jewish Christian view. Do you mean the Jewish view as opposed to the Christian view? Do you mean the view held by Messianic Jews? If that's what you mean, I don't know that there is a particular view that is the view. But there would be a belief based on scripture that there is a calling on Ishmael as well. That even though Ishmael is not the chosen seed through whom the Messiah comes, that Ishmael's people are not like the people of Israel, the, the nation through whom God sent the Messiah and to whom God gave his laws and commandments, that there is still a calling on the Ishmaelite people and that you have promises of, of God's light shining in these nations in the future. So if that's what you mean, I would say that we absolutely affirm the promises and recognize an important calling on the Ishmaelite people in the Messiah, one that has by and large not been realized yet. So just because the children of Ishmael were not called the way the children of Isaac were called, it does not mean they're cursed. I do believe there's a calling on them as children of Abraham, but it will only be fulfilled in the Messiah. Uh, Gary, don't those who preach that baptism or any other work is essential for salvation preach a false gospel? How are we to associate with these people in light of Paul's warning, Galatians 1, 6 through 8? Thank you for your ministry, my brother. All right, number one, baptism is absolutely required for obedience. 
and and it is explicit and foundational uh, in the New Testament, right? So when Jesus gives the Great Commission in Matthew twenty-eight, we're going we're to go into all the world, make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe everything He commanded, and baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, right? And in Mark sixteen, the longer ending of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And beginning in the preaching in Acts 2, 38, when the, the people, the Jewish crowd cries out, what do we do? Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus, you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. So uh, do it for the forgiveness of sins. You'll receive the gift of the Spirit. So uh, it, it's, it's throughout the New Testament as an imperative. And it's not a work. A work would be something that I do to make myself righteous. A work would be self-improvement in my own life to be accepted by God. Uh, as, as I mentioned in the first segment today, a, a work would be I'm going to fast uh, once a week uh, for a year. That would be a work. Baptism is something we're commanded to do as part of our profession of faith. Words, baptism itself does not save us. It's Jesus who saves us. But this is part of our profession of faith. So generally speaking, those who preach baptismal regeneration, so either you know, for an infant being baptized or you're not saved until you're baptized, obviously we would have differences with them. But if they said that baptism is an essential part of your salvation calling, I would say, amen, we, we affirm that. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Whether those words go back to Jesus originally or not in the longer ending of Mark, I believe they do. Whether they do or not, that's reflected through the New Testament. It's a command, and it symbolizes the washing away of our sins. And we ought not to trivialize it or, or delay it. Well, no, I haven't been baptized yet. That's, that's not an option for a believer. It's something we do. But the doing of it is not a work that saves us. It is part of our profession of faith. It symbolizes our dying to sin and, and rising in new life. It is something done before witnesses, which is important. All right. Uh, so uh, ultimately, ultimately, I'm, I'm saying that if someone understood it the way I'm saying it, no, I'm not going to separate fellowship from them or say they're preaching another gospel. No, I'm just going to try to help them to understand that baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is part of our profession of faith in Jesus who saves us. Uh, Edgar, <coughs> God has blessed me with many, many dreams dreams that I've asked with all my heart. What dream has God given to you that you can share? God bless you. Well, I have many burdens, visions, dreams in my heart from the Lord and from my reading of the word and from things he's spoken to me, just like so many of you do. And you can summarize our ministry with three R's, revival in the church, Revolution in society, redemption in Israel. Let's focus on the last one. I dream of a mass turning of religious Jews to Jesus the Messiah. I dream of a discovery of religious Jews, including learned rabbis, where through the scriptures, God working through tradition, through dreams, visions, where powerful encounter with the Lord that Yeshua, the Messiah, not, not a, a Gentile, foreign savior figure that has no resemblance to the Jewish Messiah, 
but a Messiah that Israel can recognize that there will be a mass turning of our people to the Messiah. And my great dream is to live to see it happen. That burns in me, and that is a very large part of a dream that's in my heart. Jeffrey, from your latest book, can you explain Revelation 12? Does 1260 days equal time, times, and a half a time? Who is the woman? Yes, I enjoyed the book and will write a review soon. So that's speaking of the book co-authored with Professor Craig Keener, Not Afraid of the Antichrist. Now, really, Craig's the one to ask about Revelation. He wrote an application commentary for the book of Revelation, uh, something that the Lord really laid on his heart to do. And he is tons, 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 tons more expert in understanding Revelation. But in short, yes, normally understood the time, times, and half a time uh, would refer to 1260 days, uh, normally the, the way it's interpreted. And the woman in Revelation, uh, does it symbolize the mother of the Messiah? Does it symbolize Israel? Does it symbolize the church? There are all kinds of debates about that. And again, in Revelation, uh, in the book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Craig Keener really tackles that much more. So I'd encourage you to check out what he wrote in the book. All right. Um, obviously, you've read it, but look back at Revelation overall. And then uh, you can look at his application commentary. But I, I just want to uh, look at the passage itself in Revelation, the 12th chapter. And there's a question. Is this a capitulation now of past history or is, is this looking ahead? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, a great fiery red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns and seven royal crowns on its heads. His tail sweeps away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to the earth. So is this talking about Satan's warfare in the past uh, when he's cast out of heaven, which happens later in the chapter? Is it something in the future? It's spoken of symbolically. Now the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So whenever she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child who was to rule all the nations with an iron rod. And her child was snatched away to God into his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God. So they might take care of her for 1260 days. So again, is it saying that the mother is Israel, <clears throat> Israel giving birth to the Messiah, obviously the male child that rules and reigns, that's the Messiah. <clears throat> and then Israel protected from being destroyed? Is, is Israel here overlapping then with all of God's people who are protected during a tribulation period? Does the 1260 days symbolize somehow the entire church age? There are lots of debates about that. And when I read it, I'm not entirely sure myself. This much I know that there's a lot in Revelation that's overwhelming and awesome and glorious and brings us to our knees. And there are other things where there are different lines of interpretation. I'll do my best to read it to be sobered by it, to understand how to live by it, and then to fit it together with all the other scriptures that may be less symbolic, less visionary, and try to draw doctrine from that together. Uh, Jeff, I was saved many years ago and I'm following Christ. Why is it that oftentimes when an altar call is given, I feel the urge to go forward? I know I'm already saved and I know walking an aisle doesn't save you, yet oftentimes I feel the urge to go forward when an invitation is given. Uh, Jeff, uh, we knew people that would do that, feel the need to get saved 
every time an altar call was given. And, and part of it, I would just say, is it's kind of a learned religious habit in certain circles. You hear a certain music, uh, an appeal is given a certain way, and it triggers a certain response. You just have to <laughs> ignore that. A second thing is, it may be that the Lord is convicting you of a particular sin in your life and, and convicting you to turn from that sin and you now mistake that with, well, I, I need to go back up and pray the sinner's prayer or get saved again. So you need to deal with that sin, but not respond as if you need to be saved again. If there's an altar call to draw closer to the Lord or to turn away from sin or to, to honor the Lord with a deeper consecration of our lives, I've responded to many altar calls like that and given many altar calls like that. But otherwise, if it's an altar call to get saved, I would just say you're having a response that is a rote response. Just ignore it and honor the Lord with all your heart. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. You've got Twitter questions. We've got answers. So today on this Friday Q&A show, we are specifically answering your questions posted on Twitter. Don't post them now. I'm answering questions that I solicited some days ago. And we already have more than enough questions. I'll get to as many as I can. So sit back and enjoy the broadcast. Be sure to visit my website, askdrbrown.org. Check out our latest videos and our latest articles. Uh, George, hey, Dr. Brown, what would be your response to someone who is apathetic about the existence of God and Christianity? That is, instead of making an atheistic or agnostic claim, they say, I don't care because it isn't affecting my life. Thank you for your answer and your ministry. Yeah, there are a lot of folks like that. And you can understand that my life is fine. Doing well on my job, family's good, enjoying life. You know, what, what do I care about a God or religious faith? Or I'm, I'm fine. Good for you. Great. But I'm not in crisis. I'm not needy. I'm not, life's not messed up. Every, everything's all right. And I've, I've gotten here this, thus far without a problem. So, why do I need your God? Yeah, understandable thoughts and feelings and emotions, for sure. So the first thing I would do is begin to pray for that person, that they would have an awareness of, of God, that they would begin to recognize that there must be more. And then I'd, I'd begin to engage them in conversation. Like, how do you think we got here? I mean, how... How did the universe come to be? Where did it come from? How did you ever looked at the human being the way we're designed? You know, just the, down the tiniest little cell and things, you know, millionth of a billionth of an inch, you know, whatever it is. And that's like got all these complex mechanisms. And if you ever wondered, try to get them to realize that we didn't just get here by accident. I'd ask them, so that's one line. Another line of thought would be, do you have a sense of like purpose in your life? Destiny? Where does that come from? And if not, so you're just kind of eating, drinking, surviving, isn't there more to life than that? But if they have a sense of purpose, if they have a sense of destiny, then, then you begin to depress a little further. Where did that come from? Who gave that to you? You know, if, if, we're, if we're just the, the random processes of, of a freak evolutionary sequence of events, then 
you know, our brains are just neurons firing. There's no purpose. There's no, that, that, that speaks of something beyond natural evolution. I, I, I go from that angle. Another angle about justice and injustice in this world. When, you know, there's latest news and this one got killed. It's like, just not fair. You ever wonder about that? Like life is so unfair. You, ever, you think there could be more like after life? I mean, because otherwise, how does it ever get fixed? Wicked people commit all kinds of crimes and they, they live rich, prosperous lives and they, they die fine. They see their great grandchildren and, you know, good people get killed by these very people. And you ever wonder about that? Try to get them to understand there's got to be more. And, and then at last I said, pray that the Holy Spirit would make them aware of their fragility, how fragile they are, and of their need for God and, and of their own sinfulness in sight of a holy God. Those are ways that I might approach things. Um, did I check out at AIG or creation news? No, just seeing this now creation ministries, international creation.com. Uh, oh yeah. Well, create creation.com. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with, with their work. And, uh, when, when you're looking at folks that are, are supporting divine creation, and a young earth creation. Yeah, that's, that's certainly a, a good place to go. All right. Um, let's scroll down a little bit further. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. Just trying to get back to where I was. Um, Morgan, what are some resources, videos, or books on the happenings of Noah's Ark? I'm a believer, but whenever I ask legit questions on the hows and whys of the topic, people push my questions aside and say, that stuff doesn't really matter. A, a few years ago, one of my colleagues was involved with explorations in Turkey and went up on a mountain with other workers, explorers, and came back with quite extraordinary footage encased in ice of what they believe was Noah's Ark. And there seemed to be no explanation of, of how a structure of that size could have made it up a mountain, no way that people could have brought wood up and built it. And there was question about getting it dated and things like that. Uh, Philip Williams was a key man involved with that. I've not heard updates on the project, and I have no expertise to weigh in as, as to whether it's authentic or not. I have another colleague that really rejected it, and others said, no, there's something to it. When I, when I saw private video footage about it, I was awestruck. I said, I don't know if this is it or not, but it really strikes home to me the reality that, that this happened. You know, just seeing what could have been the, the ark there on that mountaintop. It just, even though I, I believe there was a universal flood, it just, it really hit me. But beyond that, I've not followed things. Philip Williams has a book uh, where, where he's looking at various factors. A lot of people look at geology. He's looking, I believe, at archaeology and going back in ancient times. So check out his name and Noah's Ark and see what you come up with. And if it's just a matter of, hey, this is fascinating. Wouldn't it be amazing if God allowed this to be discovered after all this time? Wouldn't that bring the fear of God on the human race? In many cases, it, it would. A Kyle Dr. Brown, will your book, A Queer Thing Happened to America, be available again on Kindle in the future? I downloaded it a few years ago, but was hoping to promote it to some friends. Yeah, we worked through a distributor. We had to self-publish the book, A Queer Thing Happened to America, 700 pages, 1,500 endnotes. Uh, we <laughs> sold out of our, of our big first printing. 
no major publisher would touch it. Three publishers subsequently apologized to me. Uh, so we had to self-publish it as equal time books. And we worked with a company that then put out the ebook. Uh, once we sold out of all of our stock, they then ceased to produce the ebook. As we have gone to do it now, uh, it is a massive project to do the right way and hyperlink all the notes because we don't have the document saved in the right form. The final documents were all in PDF when they're converted back to Microsoft Word and you try to hyperlink the endnotes. It's a big project. In the meantime, because so many of the sources we cited were internet sources, <laughs> excuse me, many of the 1500 endnotes, now many are based on books, but many have to be coordinated with new sites and those that are no longer available. We have to try to find alternative sources. So it's going to be a bit of a project, but it's on our list of priorities to get it back out both in e-form uh, as well as in print. We know it's an important work that God has used. Uh, it's sold massively better than any of the publishers would have ever expected with a self-published book. So we're grateful to God for the impact it's had and the people who've read it and where it's gone. So we do want to get it back out very quickly. Your email, uh, your question is a reminder. Uh, Russell, what are your thoughts on the teaching they call Israel only full preterism? This view seems to be gaining a following, especially with the younger YouTube crowd. And it seems to me at least pretty dangerous. All right. So a full preterism, I absolutely consider very, very dangerous full preterism that says all biblical prophecies have already been fulfilled. That's right. And we are currently living in the new heaven and the new earth. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And that death and mourning have passed away. I, I find it to be very, very dangerous for many reasons. And you can watch my debate with Michael Sullivan about this very topic on YouTube. Uh, or on our website, just go to askdrbrown.org, type in Sullivan, or on our Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel, that's A-S-K-D-R Brown on YouTube, type it in. Um, the specific title of uh, Israel-only Doctrine of Preterism, here's a website, unpreteristblogspot.com, unpreteristblogspot. And um, there on the website, just want to read to you, an examination of the Israel-only doctrine of preterism. Initially, I was asked to write a refutation of the Israel-only doctrine, but I wanted to expand the scope to include a more comprehensive examination of the newest manifestation of preterism. I'll assume that the reader has a basic knowledge of preterism, but for sake of clarity, preterism, also known as full preterism and hyper-preterism, as distinguished from the lesser-developed partial preterism, is the belief that Jesus already returned and that the attending eschatological end-time events, such as the collective resurrection, the judgment of wicked and righteous, and the end of sin has already happened in the first century. Okay, so again, full preterism says there is no physical second coming. There is no physical resurrection. All prophecies have already been fulfilled. The Israel-only doctrine within preterism attempts to remain consistent with the premises of preterism in that the Israel-only doctrine insists the audience to physical descendants of Abraham and has the eschatological events all fulfilled up with, to, with, and for them. Okay, something funny in that sentence, or I read it wrong. Whereas preterism, as it has been espoused from the 1800s to the early 2000s, would illogically attempt to inject people outside the supposed audience and outside the supposed fulfillment 
back into these two classes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, okay, okay, here's the deal. I have not seen the Israel-only form of full preterism a lot. I need to look at it in more detail. There are refutations of it online, but any manifestation of full preterism I look at as dangerous. Why would some young people be attracted to, oh, you've been reading the Bible completely wrong. Oh, this idea of a second coming. No, no, no. A future for Israel? No, no, no. You, no, you've been reading it wrong. That often appeals to people. This idea that the, the whole church until in recent decades got this wrong. That has an esoteric appeal that only adds to the danger of it. Russell, I'm, I'm sorry I couldn't give a more literate, up-to-date answer to that question, only because I have not seen it as much. Nathaniel, if you claim Christ but deny literal Adam, where does that put you with respect to Christ and the apostles' teaching? Yes, yeah, so there are evangelical scholars who are questioning whether there's a literal Adam and Eve, or do they just stand symbolically for the human race? But there was not an original couple, Adam and Eve, and, and often they, they raise these questions based on what they understand as scientific evidence that they would feel contradict scripture. Okay, you are not required to believe in a literal Adam and Eve in order to be saved. There's nowhere that's taught in the Bible or in historic church confessions or anything like that. However, in my mind, when you now say that Adam and Eve were not literal human beings, would literally send as described in scripture and were the first couple, you're now on dangerous ground that can easily slide into other error and questioning the literal authority of scripture. So I'm not gonna say an evangelical must affirm a literal Adam and Eve to be saved. I'm saying they're on very slippery slopes already the ground shaking beneath their feet in terms of what they might deny next. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey friends, we're answering your Twitter questions today. If you're not connected with me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is Dr. Michael L. Brown, as in doctor. So Dr. Michael L. Brown. Make sure you get the two L's in the middle there, and you can follow me on Twitter. If you're not connected with us on Facebook and you're active there, we are Ask Dr. Brown, Ask Dr. Brown on Facebook, and the same on YouTube. Ask Dr. Brown, Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube, and even if you connect with me on Facebook or Twitter, still subscribe on YouTube. It's a good thing to do. This way, and then turn on your notifications so as soon as there's a new video, you'll know about it. Or when we go live, you'll know about it. If you're a current YouTube subscriber, you say, yeah, but I don't, I don't always know when you're going live. Or I don't get notified. Turn on your notifications and tell YouTube how you'd like to be notified with your subscription. All right? So B. Glyphics asks, is Matthew 16, 19 an allusion to Isaiah 22, 22? If so, or if not, what does it mean? The language is certainly being borrowed. So if you go back to the Oracle and Isaiah, the 22nd chapter, and this was to a, a faithful steward in, in the king's house, Isaiah 22, 22, I'll place, so it's to Eliakim, I'll place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. All right. So he will have the key of the house of David. So he's going to be a faithful steward 
And basically what he says goes and he's going to have authority within the palace. Now, when we go to Yeshua's words in Matthew 16, as he's speaking to Peter and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So yeah, there, there's a borrowing of language as often happens. And after all, Jesus is the Davidic Messiah and his apostles here are, are stewards. All right. Uh, so, um, as he's speaking this to Peter, he's giving Peter a stewardship. No, Peter's not the first Pope, but he's giving Peter a stewardship. He's giving him authority. And in the context of the early believers, there were rulings that had to be established. What was acceptable, what was unacceptable. And, and this would be for Peter and the apostles to establish. And what they would establish would, be, would reflect what God had established in heaven. So that, those would be the parallels. So it, it is using similar language, and here Peter would be likened to an Eliakim as a faithful steward in, in, in the house of the Davidic Messiah. Uh, if there's more to it, I'm sure there is more to it. Uh, others can illuminate you in their Matthew commentaries. Uh, Chris, should Christians be more proactive about teaching biblical sex ed, specifically in churches, to push back against the liberal human sexuality, gender confusion that's being pushed in public education and virtually everywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. In our homes, we have to be super aware early on. In our homes from early ages, we want to reinforce certain truths about male and female and mommies and daddies and girls and boys. We want to reinforce those things, not stereotypical, that if a girl's tomboyish, that, well, I must be a man in a, in a girl's body or boy in a girl's body. No, we recognize that there are all kinds of different expressions that are, that are not exactly gender typical. But we know that there's a distinct difference between boys and girls. We know biologically, we know in other ways emotionally, we want distinct roles for mommies and distinct roles for daddies that even our little children can understand. And, and then as they start to become aware of things, you need to know what's happening in their schools, even in Christian schools. So, you know, sometimes they're getting influenced, but especially in public schools, what's being taught, what's going on. I want to see the curriculum. I want to be notified of certain things. Uh, if, if you are not happy with what the school is teaching, you take your kid out. Well, you don't have the right. Sorry, you don't have the right to abuse my kid. I don't, I don't care if we're going to have to take it up legally with, with the state. And that's, that's even happened in California right now. It was not the, the, the mother's intent, but she said, oh, no, I want to see what's being taught. Yeah, get involved. I've gotten calls from parents in tears on the radio show, just very upset. You know, I remember one mother calling from Boston, I believe, and she said, look, we've always taught our son to be loving and kind to everyone. But he came home from school very upset. There was a, 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 an auditorium meeting that all, this, all the school brought together without parents being told for a pro-LGBT presentation. And with, you know, kids getting up saying, yeah, I'm gay and I'm Christian and it's fine for you and your parents may not agree. And it, so they're undermining the parents right there. And for decades, that's been the strategy. I mean, we have it. It's, it's well-known videos where teachers are sitting around saying, yeah, well, we, we should undermine. We should undermine what the parents saying if the parents are wrong. You know, just like parents are racist, you, know, you undermine what they're saying. It. That's our role. It's part of our calling here as teachers. And you need to know what's happening. And yeah, as soon as your kids are old enough to understand certain things, begin to explain, begin to teach. Begin to show them the failings of the way of the world, the sacredness of sex, 
and, and how it belongs exclusively within the context of marriage and, and why homosexual practice is contrary to God's will and desire and why promiscuity and adultery are contrary. Yeah, and, and have them have a, a, a beautiful appreciation for what God has given and how sacred and special it is. Um, let's see. Lambo, what do you think of the Israel follow? And I may have pronounced his, mispronounced his name. Australia rugby star and his employees rugby employers rugby Australia on his faith and canceling his contract. Okay, so he is one of the top rugby players in Australia. And Australian rugby is like football in America. It's a big, big sport there. And it's a big sport internationally. And he's one of the, the top players in the nation. And a committed Christian and an outspoken Christian. So he had shared some of his viewpoints a year ago and was told, listen, don't, you can hold to what you hold to, but when you are in our employ, we play for the whole nation. We don't discriminate against one group or another group. So you just need to not post these things if you want to keep playing. So the other day he posts something. You say it's just based on 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. He says, hell awaits, and he has a list. Homosexuals, drunkards, adulterers, etc. And, you know, like Paul gives a list in 1 Corinthians 6 and elsewhere in the New Testament and says, you know, repent and believe. Now, Brian Houston, well-known leader of Hillsong worldwide but based in Australia, said, hey, listen, that's, that's not the way to win the lost. And I've, I've, I've seen for decades now preaching the love of God and, and, and calling people, and that way is, is the better way to reach them, and hellfire is not going to reach anyone. So now you have that debate. Let's put that aside for the moment. What about what he did? The issue is that no one said you can't call out the adulterers, you can't call out the drunkards. They're only upset that he called out those who practice homosexuality, homosexual, all right? And, and, and how can you say that? So there is the political correctness of the day. I have no problem if a, a sports team says, listen, we know, let's say I've got Muslim players, Christian players, and others, right? We know you're very devout, but because we play for the whole nation, don't, while you're in our employ, we don't want you to be preaching your faith in conjunction with that. Now, someone could say that's oppressive. I differ with that. Okay, you can have that discussion, right? Uh, you know, let's say you had a Muslim that was really aggressively is, Islamic and, and, and mainly a Christian, professing Christian country. And this fellow, you know, is, is saying you've got to believe in Allah or you're going to be damned to hell and the Quran is God's word. They could say, you know, that's really offensive to folks. We, we hired you to play and in your own time, in your own setting, when you're, you're not playing for us, you're not under contract, do what you want. So I could understand a debate about that, all right? The bottom line here, though, is that he's being persecuted. There are, he's being punished because he singled out homosexuals. All right? That's the big issue here. And, and, and he's fighting it, but he also said, look, if God has a better plan for me, uh, I'll miss playing rugby. You know, I'll, I'll miss that. It's just 30 years old, I think, thereabouts. So I, I am very sympathetic to his position because of the fact that he's being singled out because of one group. So the question is, is he not allowed to quote the Bible publicly while in the employ of this team? Now, if he signs something saying, I won't express my faith, etc., and then he broke that, that's another issue, all right? But if he simply quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and posted that on Instagram and said, I believe the word of God, we've all sinned, but there's mercy for all, because that mentions men who practice homosexuality. Would he be, would he be allowed to do that? If not, there's a big problem 
And I do believe this should get the attention of the world. Now, as for the issue between Brian Houston and, and, and Israel Follow, again, forgive me if I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly. Uh, I understand Brian Houston's point that you don't just hit people over the head with the Bible and say, turn and burn, turn or burn. At the same time, I've seen a massively watered down gospel over the years where people are never called to repent. They're never called to turn from sin. They never understand that it's their sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. And because of that, they become very superficial, shallow Christians if they're truly Christians at all. So I, I will let those gentlemen have that debate there. What I would say is the true gospel is full of love and full of a call to repentance. And we'll ultimately mention hell and judgment as something that Jesus is saving us from and something for which we flee to the cross. All right. Uh, <laughs> there's, I'm looking at more questions. I'm, I'm out of time. And uh, there, as I'm looking, there's nothing that I can just answer in. in uh, well, here, Daniel, can church tradition be looked to as a source of truth? Secondarily, secondarily. It can confirm testimony of scripture. It can tell us what was taught by early believers. It can show us how they understood scripture. Uh, it could show us what the disciples of the apostles taught and believed, but secondary, because we know that much tradition goes astray and it's the word of God alone that is divinely inspired. All right, friends, pay us a visit at askdrbrown.org. If you appreciate what you're doing, click on donate. We're here. Listener, viewer, support it with your help. If you believe in what we're doing, stand with us today. AskDrBrown.org is the place to go.